it's not trying to be a hard science thing. It's not trying to, you know, really flesh out the mechanisms biologically behind the zombie infection or any of that. No. None of that shit makes any biological sense with the way it happens in the movie, and that's fine. It's not trying to. It's a it's a zombie fantasy. stories and storytelling. I'm Faye Fix. And I'm Charlene. And this week we're going to be talking about Warm Bodies, the 2013 film, because we are up to date. Yeah. I mean, really, it's getting into spooky season. That's what everyone has been calling it lately. I don't remember that really being a thing that people called October all the time before, but apparently... I think it's weird. It's gone yeah. back to spooky. I feel like the last couple of years it was spooky. Uh, I've, I've heard that too. But anyway, we're getting into the Halloween spirit with our, uh, you know, zombie movie rom-com. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that's fun. We're going to be continuing that with the next episode as well. The last episode in October is going to be on the Addams Family movies. I think we're going to do the two that they released years ago and then the one they released last year as well. I'm not sure. It kind of depends on how much time we have. I haven't seen the animated one they released last year. I don't think I knew it was animated. It's like not drawn animated. It's computer animated, I think. But yeah, anyway, it's an, it's not live action. Yeah. And in early November, we'll also be doing something spooky, but we're going to keep that one a little bit of a secret. It's for our anniversary because in November, we'll have been doing this for a year. It's weird, right? If you go back into our back catalog to what we started with, you might be able to figure it out. It's not a massive like secret, I guess, but... Yeah. I think that in our first episode, I might have said what we will be doing if we're still doing it, and we're sticking to that. So we do have a couple bits of housekeeping. Number one is we launched a YouTube channel a little while ago, and we told you all we were going to put our podcast episodes on it, and we've been doing that. But it was also a cunning piece of subterfuge on our part because we were really setting it up for what happened on Saturday, which was a launch of our new videos. So we're now going to be putting out every other week a video where Charlotte and I are sitting there, we talk to the camera, there are clips. It's one of those videos that you've seen on YouTube, but it's better because it's us. There's one up there talking about Hamilton's affair and how the musical kind of tries to get you to ignore that. And another one talking about the game Horizon Zero Dawn, which we did an episode on as well and how the found objects in that work to tell the story and make the world a lot bigger and wider. Mm -hmm. They're pretty cool, and we hope that you enjoy them and uh, keep an eye out for our future videos. Yep. So in theory, once we've got our posting schedule sorted out, you'll every Wednesday you'll either get a podcast or you'll get a YouTube video. The YouTube videos are shorter. They're sort of 10 to 30 minutes is the plan. The current ones are both 10 to 20 minutes. So... When you don't want to listen to us go on for two hours, you can go check one of those out. Mm -hmm. The other two pieces of news are sort of conjoined. One is that we now have a logo. I have not yet set it up on the podcast platform, but I should have by the time this goes out. I drew it myself because logos are expensive, and apparently I made a pretty good one in the end of the day, if I say so myself. I think so. I think it looks good. Now that we have a logo... One of the things that we want to do is start putting out merch. A few people have asked us about it, and we were thinking that we would do some coffee cups and some pins, but we're looking at Redbubble, and mm-hmm. we'll get and back to And also probably you. some masks, you know? 
as things go on, I think everyone's looking to have a little bit more variety in their mask wardrobe. It's it's now like a pretty important accessory. So we'll probably have those too. Yeah, it's, it's very much a work in progress, but we're hoping to have it up in the next couple of days. So take a look at our social media pages or try searching on ramblings on Repa. We'll see what happens. They also offer shower curtains. So if you want our logo on a shower curtain, let me know and I'll set it up. But yeah. otherwise, I'm not doing that. Really just like in general, if there's any specific merch that you know Redbubble and Public type places do offer, let us know. And it's not too hard to enable that. It's just, you know, we're not going to go through and optimize for all of the different types of random ass things unless people actually might want them. So People want our logo on a mini skirt. Yeah. <laughs> just like the open book right across the butt yeah well i'm assuming that's the butt it could be the crutch (laughs) somehow that's even sillier but if there's also anything that you think we should put on merch aside from our logo we'd love to hear from you about it you can talk to us in the discord if you're a patreon or you can message us or you can email us at either unramblingspodcast at gmail.com or unramblingsmedia at gmail.com because we no longer just do podcasts. I had to get us a new email address. I just realized that we did forget one thing. We have a theme song now. Theme song? Mm. Theme tune? Yes, we would like to acknowledge and thank Mike Passington for writing that for us. It's really lovely and it's kind of too bad that it's not standard for you to just play two full minutes of intro music at the beginning of a podcast because it's a really nice piece of music that he put together and you can find his soundcloud linked in the show notes but yeah we really really appreciate it and hope you like it if you did enjoy it and you'd like to listen to a little bit more of that particular piece you can go to our youtube channel and watch our trailer and it plays in the background throughout the extent of it and so then you can hear the full piece of music which again is really really nice And we'll probably put a bit of a longer piece at the end before the blooper. Mm -hmm. Are there any videos of you guys playing back when synesthesia was going on? There aren't any good videos. Are they like on YouTube or anything? Ah, God, I hope not, but I'm sure they're somewhere up there. There Uh, is somewhere on SoundCloud. There is the cover of Wicked Game we did. Yeah, so fun, you know, Easter egg for people listening. If you look for uh, synesthesia on soundcloud and the recording back when faithix and mike were in a band together there is a performance of wicked game where you can hear faithix on the keyboard thanks for that you're welcome (sighs) it's a good performance i think you guys did a good job it's just the way you look back on anything that you did nope don't want to think about how many years ago that was (laughs) i'm good with that not that long not a full decade no not much less than one. <laughs> anyway, Warm Bodies. We will obviously be spoiling the entirety of the film Warm Bodies. If we have any other spoiler or content warnings, we will drop those in right here. And maybe there'll be like a little sound effect before we go into that. Let's see. Hello. Was there music? Maybe. I don't know. We have a few sort of spoilers this time. There are references to our conversations in episodes on previous works. Uh, most notably, our conversation about the video game The Last of Us, which is a zombie video game, so you can imagine why it might come up here. And the Disney Pixar film Wally. We also talk about Romeo and Juliet a decent amount. Kind of assume you know the plot for that, though. I think that's it. Do we have any content warnings? 
I mean, the normal ones that go along with a zombie movie of, you know, attacks and uh, eating of brains and... There's a fairly extensive yeah. conversation about brain eating at one point, but in good fun, though. Yeah, so there's there's that, but I think that's pretty much it. Okay, and um, back to the past. Welcome back. Okay, so we're talking about warm bodies, and now Charlene is going to summarize it. Sure. Not pictured... Yeah, it's the podcast format. You didn't see how surprised I was by Sean agreeing to that so easily. So Warm Bodies is a different kind of zombie movie. It's told from the perspective of a zombie. Uh, Nicholas Holt plays R, a zombie who doesn't remember his actual name, only that it started with R. And he is kind of performing a running commentary on like the existence of being a zombie. He falls like you know love at first sight type in love with a human woman julie who he encounters when they're raiding a pharmacy and he kills her ex-boyfriend he rescues her from the rest of the zombie horde that has attacked her and her party and keeps her safe from the other zombies and as they spend time together and as he interacts with her more he starts to get even more less zombie he had already been kind of less of a zombie than the other zombies but that kind of progresses even more and it also starts to become contagious to the other zombies they start to remember human connection and just start to generally get more alive like their hearts start beating again and things like that eventually they go to try and tell the humans that they're getting better but they're being chased by another class of zombies like the zombies after they've kind of given up on any form of existence and become these skeletonized ones called bonies who will destroy anything with a heartbeat and so they're now going after the zombies who are recovering um so then the humans and the zombies join forces against the bonies and they win and people realize that the way to cure the zombies of being zombies is to kind of be patient with them and connect with them and teach them things and then they get better um i think that's pretty much it oh also of course julian are fall in love happens kind of slowly because he's sort of gross at the beginning but it gets there because it's a rom-com i think that's about everything yes yeah yeah i think that was pretty good yay i mean it's a pretty simple story yeah it's weird but it's simple okay let's get into it so this is not a complex narrative no it's not like the movie has messages and they're all like hanging out there for you to see them which I think is interesting that it isn't a complex narrative when the one other zombie thing that we've talked about has been The Last of Us, mm-hmm. which is also not a complex narrative. It's a complex set of characters. This doesn't even have that going for it. <laughs> Fair. The characters themselves aren't particularly complicated. And in fact, I think that's sort of the point. Like yes. they're archetypes. Right. Which I think is the whole thing here is that... Uh, you you called it when we were talking before an allegorical zombie movie. Yeah, it's not trying to be a hard science thing. It's not trying to, you know, really flesh out the mechanisms biologically behind the zombie infection or any of that. No, none of that shit makes any biological sense with the way it happens in the movie, and that's fine. It's not trying to. It's you, a it's a zombie fantasy. You said flesh because ah. zombies. Anyway, yeah, I mean, there's there's no reason behind any of it making sense we don't get any science or investigation behind it there's this vague notion of people maybe working for a cure but the idea that 
they slow down and become, quote, corpses, and then they become bonies later because they've peeled all their skin off and now they have a very unnatural skeleton underneath, but they're now faster and stronger. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that the heartbeats come back. It's inconsistent about some of the movement because it's being used as a vehicle to tell a story. And it's more important that the amount of movement that R has reflects his state on a journey rather than making medical sense. Yeah. Although I do want to nitpick a little bit because, you know, it's just what I do, that the the bonies, when you look at them, they're not actually skeletons. Like they look skeletal, but really they're more like desiccated and sort of shrink-wrapped. Which wouldn't make sense if you'd pil- peeled all of your skin off. Well, it does. They they have no skin or subcutaneous fat. It's just like dried muscle huh. and bone. And so like you could see when it showed like their legs and stuff, they still had like calves. It wasn't just like a couple bones there. It was just a really dense looking, kind of rigid looking calf, you know? But there was still a bump there. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they have flesh. Uh, There are muscles there that presumably are still moving their legs. But again, they're not trying to be super scientifically realistic here, despite me nitpicking in the way I just did. Um. (laughs) So I think that the one really valid science thing that they bring up is the fact that if you eat someone's brains, then you get their memory. Yeah, that's totally how the brain works. If I were to scoop your brains out right now and eat them, I would suddenly remember all the things that you had experienced in your life. That's, that's how that happened. No, <laughs> it's not. It's not how that happens. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I was confused. Can you uh, just quickly explain how memories do work? Well, there is a pretty complicated system with the limbic system and like there are some brain substructures that are really important in men including like the hippocampus but i don't really think we have time to get into all of that and also we don't fully fully understand we just know like some of the stuff involved in that fuck off would also have been a viable answer i mean yeah (laughs) i I was really going for the we don't really know thing but people have eaten brains and mostly what they get is a weird disease prion disease yeah um (laughs) Don't don't do that. It's yeah. it's really bad. Prion diseases are really bad. Uh, this is the unrambling's take for 2020. Don't eat people's brains because you'll get a disease. And also, don't do it. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons to not eat people's brains. That's but, not what you said a moment ago. Um, if if none of the moral reasons are enough, also there's. The uh, There's a selfish reason to not do that. So anyway, in this movie, the whole point is that human connection is important and we shouldn't be isolating ourselves partially through technology. And that's very clear in this film. Yes, you shouldn't just be like sitting around on your phone listening to podcasts all the time or something. You should go out and talk to people. Uh, which Unless ag- it's this podcast, listen to this. Podcast. Yeah, which again, like I, I believe you have a bone to pick with, you know, casting technology as like disconnecting and isolating people, right? You usually do. So I'm just I'm gonna toss that one right over there. <laughs> I, I do to clarify. Like, I mean, I don't know that we've pointed out the ways that it does that more precisely yet. It's sort of here and there. I think one of the most on the nose moments is when he's talking about wondering what the airport that he's living in was like before. And like... He being R, the zombie. Yes, yes. And he's, you know, waxing 
lyrical about how you know all oh, these people coming together and connecting and things and during this time there's like a flashback around him with weird lighting to show it's not really happening of all these people walking around staring at their phones and playing games on little consoles and things and nobody is looking at each other so they very much do like highlight up front that there's this the world was not about connection. Yeah, and then there's also other subtler things like the fact that this zombie prefers to listen to records because it's more alive, yeah. um, you know, which is another one of those things where it's all this advanced technology, it's watering down our experience kind of an idea. When the group that includes Julie and her ex-boyfriend get attacked... The first person there to die is the person who was shirking his duties and instead playing a PSP because it was 2013 and people still played PSPs. Yeah, like his <laughs> friends are there and they're like, help us get the medicine so we can get the hell out of here before we get attacked by zombies. And he's like, no, I'm almost at level five or some shit. And then, you know, nom. So, Which, yeah. I'm almost at level five is a line written about someone playing video games by someone who has not played a video game in 30 years. There aren't levels anymore. Yeah, there are. You level up. Well, okay, you level up, but I mean, I'm assuming, like, when but someone's like, character... I got to level yeah, five. Yeah, 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 It's more like, if I got to level five, it's like, I got to world one level five of Mario or something. Sure, 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 yeah. That's fair. It should have been like, I'm almost level five. Not, I'm almost at level five. They do very much set it up as technology is the death of communication, mm -hmm. which I do take issue with because... I am someone who lives in a different country to where I was born and raised and lived for 20 years. And I talk to my parents and my family and my friends through technology. It is how I communicate to people. I live a thousand miles away from where I did my master's degree, where I still talk to people through technology. And right um, now, I think we can all appreciate the connective ability of technology during the pandemic when a lot of people are having to use technology to stay in touch more than they ever have. I'm also married to someone who I was in a long distance relationship across an ocean for two years. Yep. And webcams, being able to actually see each other's faces, this was an important part of that. Yep. We don't have to write letters to each other anymore. Technology is often about communicating with people. It's just not about communicating with the person who's next to you. And there's all those old pictures of like, Ah, before t phones, people talk to each other and then it's a load of people on a bus all staring at their newspaper and ignoring the person next to them. We're people. We don't want to talk to the person next to us. The person next to us is usually some asshole we don't know. Yep. And that's the hill I've chosen to die on. Yeah. Point being, the movie is very clear in that the message is human connection has sort of been allowed to wither because of gains in technology and that's a problem and we need to like rediscover the benefits of human contact in person human connection getting to know people you didn't know before talking to them teaching them things falling in love all of those things and uh yeah it's it's very above board with that yeah i think it's interesting how much everything in the film is about that and how it's all about that lost connection like i mean the zombies are zombies allegorically because they've lost touch with people and connection and you can see that the humans under the rule of john malkovich because we said we would bring john malkovich back in this episode have written him off he's given up hope mm -hmm. and like there's there's they talk about one point about like most people have given up hope for a cure yeah and it's more that they they've given up hope 
because yeah. hope is the cure. But you see the breakdown in connection throughout, especially like with Julie. Mm-hmm. Like she is disconnected from her dad because her mother died. Right. And uh, Julie is the daughter of John Malkovich, who is the leader of this remaining human community. Well, the daughter of John Malkovich's character. Yes, you know what I mean. I don't remember his actual name in the movie. Grigio. Okay. But also one of the first moments that you see is she tries to hold her ex's, I guess, hand. And he, like, shakes her off. So even that's a sign of, like, connection breaking down. Mm-hmm. And he then dies shortly afterwards. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that John Malkovich's character says is that soon there'll be more of them than there are of us. And again, it's part of that escalation of the loss of hope. He no longer has any hope for any sort of a bright future. Like the best he can think of as a future, which Julie calls him out on, is basically a small cluster of humanity hunkered down behind huge walls. And she seems to feel like there is still some hope for something better than that. And, you know, still has a bit of an adventurous spirit, which I think it's implied that that's something that R kind of recognizes in her but I mean it's not really explicit there's honestly not any good basis for him falling in love with her it really is like a cheesy love at first sight thing yes but, you, you don't understand you see that she's a pretty blonde yeah that's well, actually all it takes apparently, apparently oh. even if you're a zombie who's presumably eaten lots of pretty blondes but whatever it's something that I think I've only really seen addressed in strangely enough the Resident Evil movies is what happens to zombies when they outnumber humans enough that there's not enough food for them. Mm -hmm. So, like, I do wonder statistically how many people each zombie might eat. Yeah, that's fair. It's weird because they are not trying to be scientifically accurate with it. Like, there's all sorts of, like, ways that the way the zombies work kind of breaks down. Because at some point, R acknowledges that zombies have to eat people, but then somehow the humans are able to, like, help the zombies heal and basically become totally better without ever addressing that. But there's also the progression of the, z- the zombies into the bonies, which seems to involve like a fundamental loss of hope or interest in experience. And how that works is never really explained. Um, presumably, if they never did figure out the connection cure, all the zombies would eventually become bonies. And the, b- the bonies will eat the zombies if they are getting better. Because that's kind of how the end of the movie sort of happens. But anyway. Yeah. I don't even know if any of that's relevant to talk about. But It's interesting how a lot of the settings um, work to drive home this connection stuff. Oh, 100%. Like the airport in particular. Yeah. Because that's a place that you go to connect with other people. Like literally you're there for a connection. Either you're connecting to another plane or you're connecting to your ground transportation or you're literally getting picked up by the people that you're going to be there to see. Weirdly enough, it's also where most of the connection happens. Yeah, To the is. point that like it's where R meets M and is friends with him. Yeah, M uh, being another zombie that he's friends with. It's where R takes... Julie and forms a connection with her. It's where M and the other zombies are who pick up that connection when looking at like pictures of people holding hands and things. There are multiple sets within the scene within the film. It's not all the airport, but that is where all the important connections happen. Yeah. The other prominent locations are a stadium. Yeah, which I think it's worth noting Perry, 
mm-hmm. the one played by the younger Franco brother. Yeah. When he's passing through there, is sort of wistful for the idea of being there. And mm-hmm. is like pretending to swing a bat and you hear his cheering. Mm-hmm. It's in his memories. Like hear the cheering that he's imagining. And I think that that is part of him, him losing the hope that he had. Yeah, well, it's part of his nostalgia for a time when being at a stadium was like this experience of connecting with a huge crowd of people, of like all having this shared experience and getting swept up in it with all of those people, even though they were strangers to you. I do continue to have like small problems with some of the bits of the storytelling in this film that don't make a lot of sense because Perry and Julie both have memories and experiences that... I don't think they could have had because the outbreak is supposed to have happened eight years before and they're clearly teenagers or intended to be teenagers at least. Some of the experiences they talk about is like, you weren't doing that at nine. No, I have less problems with it because they also say that there's a neighborhood that they end up holding up in for a while. That's the most recent one that her dad evacuated, which indicates there were still people out there so like the spread of the disease and the spread of the breakdown in civilization seems to have taken a long time so i don't know that it's necessarily that even if the outbreak started eight years ago it may not have necessarily reached them or the area that they were affected by until maybe a little bit later okay that's fair you mentioned when we were talking before that you saw some similarity with the way that settings and the world were used to tell the story to The Last of Us and the conversation that we had with that. How deep did that go? Or was it just the general fact that it was the thing that existed? Um, more just the connections thing, like the fact that it's an airport and the stadium and things like that with the uh, human community. I'm not sure what else there was beyond that. Because with The Last of Us, it's a lot of symbolic locations of institutions and the breakdown of those. Yeah, I think to me it was more like the symbolism of community and of places where you connect with people. The airport thing, being on a plane where you're just stuck with somebody for several hours which is kind of what's going on with them. And there's like a suburban neighborhood that they're taking refuge in for a while. Highways, which are connecting people. Like there are lots of periods of time when they're on a highway and driving and that's part of their bonding experience. But also part of when like R thinks he's all alone, but then isn't, meets up with the other zombies who have come to find him and help him. So I think that it's more the ideas being attached to those settings like the stadium, like I was talking about before. It's kind of the same thing with The Last of Us, only with that, it was more the corruption of those institutions and like the negative aspects of like the rigidity of those institutions. But with here, it's different. It's more of like the role that those settings play in our ability to connect with each other. Okay, yeah, that's fair. It is a very upbeat film. Yeah. It's, for a zombie movie? Mm-hmm. It's very cheery. You're saying, you're comparing it to like the negativity of like the corruption of the institutions in The Last of Us does like point out that there's a lot of problems in that society beyond just the communication issues and stuff. Like the fact that the leader has a full on mansion to live in. Mm -hmm. There does not seem to be much equality in that society still. Um, Yeah. It's his way or the highway, but literally perhaps. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like there is some scarcity in terms of food. And other things like they have a really nice house and they have electricity, but it does seem like they have electricity in general in the camp. And in general, people don't have access to like 
nice pre-zombie outbreak food in general because there's like a flashback scene where they have a bottle of wine and it's a special treat that they haven't had in a very long time and something that was saved when it was found at some point for a special occasion so there's there is clearly still that level of scarcity it's unclear whether like other people in that community who are not the leader's family ever have a bottle of wine for special occasion but it's not like he's hoarding every nice thing that anyone ever finds and like just having wine all the time or something yeah so that's true r gives julie a corona on the plane and she's like oh wow it's been a really long time since i've had a beer they're clearly not you know even though she's a part of that family again getting she's a teenager shouldn't be having beer to begin with i think i think they're early 20s do you think so i think so Okay. I think that's part of why her friend is grilling R on like how old he is because she's like you could be in your early 20s but you could be a teenager you've got one of those faces I think it's more but, are you a teenager like us or are you in your late 20s and or mid 20s or in your 20s not yeah. late 20s but I think she says late 20s anyway. no I think they're supposed to be more like in their 20s like college age it's unclear it ultimately doesn't really make much of a difference in that kind of an, of an environment anyway in that kind of no. an environment, you're an adult when you can be trusted to patrol anyway. So I'm sure that we had a conversation recently where you argued with me about drinking ages and said that there was a strong issue to do with the formation of the brain. But Oh, there is. I'm not talking about developmentally. I'm talking about culturally. Okay. You're talking about her still being a teenager. Yeah. Like It's unclear whether she is or not, but in that kind of a society, it probably wouldn't matter. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I don't want to say like I... I nitpick the issue of them aligning technology with the idea of a lack of communication. I think that they do go deeper than just the technology side of things to say something that's a bit more worthwhile. There is sort of the importance of actually hearing each other and taking time and listening to what's going on. And I think that you see that reflected in a different way with the technology because we talked about the vinyl Mm -hmm. um, and... They both spend time going and picking something out and putting something on. And the music that's chosen for those is very intentional choices. Mm-hmm. The one that springs to mind is Guns N' Roses' Patience is one of the ones that's played. Mostly just the instrumental part of it at a point where R just needs to give her some time. I mean, it's a little heavy-handed, but I think the more important thing with that is that it is about taking that intention and making a connection with that and i think that you see the antithesis of how that plays out with the communication with grigio where he isn't willing to listen to other people he's got an idea he's decided how the world is Mm -hmm. and nothing anybody else says to him is going to matter and until the point at which his mind is able to be changed on that that's where they're going to head to it's saying that if we don't stop and listen and change, then we're all going to end up being these, being disconnected and failing as a society, or in the terms of the film, becoming ravenous skeleton things with weird muscles and no subcutaneous fat. Yeah. I want to go back to one of the things you were talking about, because uh, I agree that an, an important message is that you have to have that kind of open mind and be willing to uh, not assume that you know everything about somebody who has a different experience than you. You know, you can't write people off just because they're different because that's definitely a critical part of Julie as a character. It's yeah. why she is able to warm up to R and even recognize that he's not trying to eat her and that he's trying to keep her safe and that she can trust him ultimately. 
But also going back to what you were talking about with the way that they keep like choosing different um, albums to play on the record player as a form of communication, particularly R is choosing those very intentionally to compensate for his inability to speak in particular uh, because Mm. he is only able to haltingly say like one or two words at a time at the beginning of the movie and he his internal monologue is a lot more fluid but he he doesn't have the muscle control and like you see that get better and better over the course of the film but at the beginning his movement and his speech are both very inhibited and so in that way technology in the form of the record player because that is technology it's just not as advanced as what we have now he's using it as a way to enhance and enable communication he wouldn't have been able to do before. It's how he tells her that he is trying to give her some space, that he is someone who can be trusted. Yeah, and I think it speaks more widely as well with, like, I think a lot goes on in that scene because there's the point when she's like, couldn't you work out how to use an iPod? And he says... More alive. Yeah, it sounds better and more alive and her response is but so much more work right and it's that thing of you have to work it it's why we see him struggling and slowly getting better it's not that he gets a kiss and then he's suddenly healed and better or something like it's not a thing that happens overnight yeah it's a progression that you do see happen over probably like a week and a half Mm-hmm. because she's on the plane for several days. Yeah. And it's also, I think, an important distinction that the way that they're using technology is to facilitate a connection yeah. rather than to facilitate isolation, as opposed to the dude who gets killed in the beginning of the pharmacy raid because he is ignoring his friends, not helping to ensure the safety of the group, and not helping He's playing a game. They don't have the internet. It's not like he's playing with other people because it's established that the internet does not work in this reality at this point. Presumably the infrastructure is just not there anymore. Um, So he is explicitly using that game to ignore everybody and be cut off and unhelpful. Yeah. And also interestingly, like the old technology of the vinyl is used for a connection Whereas when an iPod is used later on, it's used as a like mockery device. Yeah, it's used as a joke. Yeah, Yeah, at first. Mm -hmm. Mm. And kind of going back to this sort of theme of just the whole point is to connect with other people and like the overall message being that that is how people ultimately get better if they are not doing well is by connecting with other people and having other people help them like that's basically the entire thing is just the rehumanization of these corpses that's literally what the humans are calling the infected people to try and forget that they were people and that they might still be people in some way and that they might be curable because it's a lot easier to shoot them and not feel bad about it if you are able to successfully dehumanize them in your mind. But the entire arc of it is that in order to make them get any better, you have to help them remember what it is to be human. You have to help them remember what it is to have genuine interactions with other people and keep them from just being bodies. And then there's the title of the movie, which is Warm Bodies, uh, which I think is kind of a fun play on words because the whole thing, like they get warmer as they get better. 
And then there's that whole phrase of warm body is supposed to be like an interchangeable person that's faceless and anybody could be in that position. There's no no individuality or skill necessary to be a warm body, but that's sort of exactly what this movie is trying to say, that there aren't any warm bodies. Like anyone who has a warm body is way more than that. Yeah, there is this one thing that like, I'm not totally sure how it fits in with the message, which is really the bonies. Yeah. Which I kind of wonder narratively whether they were added later. Like there was a version of a script where there weren't bonies, there were just other corpses that were more violent and bad in some way. And then they created the bonies as a way to make there be a more precise villain distinguished from the, quotes, good zombies. But they're represented as having given up hope. Yeah. And they're too far gone. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty close to where Grigio is. Yeah. Like, he's kind of the human equivalent of it. I'm not really sure how that fits in with the story, though. Yeah, and I, I have issues with that, too. I think it's interesting that, like, visually, like, the shape of their skull is kind of similar to, like, the long oval shape of John Malkovich's head, literally. Like, I wonder if that visual <laughs> parallel is intentional. Do you know what I mean? Just, well, like, in terms of silhouette, like... I, I I can see what you mean. I think you might be being a little harsh to John Malkovich. I mean, no, I'm not saying, like, he looks like a zombie or anything. <laughs> I'm just saying, like... If that, if that parallel of the hopelessness and like rigidity is there, like that black and white thinking, because that's really the commonality. You get very little description of the bonies, but what you get is that they'll eat anything with a heartbeat, which is why they turn on the zombies that start to get better because their hearts start beating again. And that they have chosen in some way to devolve to the point that they have or to escalate to the point that they have, however it works. They've decided to do an active process of tearing off their flesh in their giving up because you see how that happens they are the ones who do that to themselves and they are actively choosing to become something incapable of connection i think it's represented as more of a compulsion Mm. So I don't think it's as much a choice to give up as a choice to stop fighting. Yeah, that makes sense. I could see that. Like they let the compulsion take over. Mm -hmm. But they stop being capable of any experience beyond that prey drive that they seem to all have. That even the zombies have. Like the zombies seem to have periods when they're not hungry. When they're just sort of shuffling around and when they're having limited interactions with each other. Yeah. Even the ones who aren't as like interpersonal as R and M, they do seem to kind of seek out others to go together to hunt. They have like a pack mentality. They kind of form together and then disperse and kind of do their own thing. They have their own place that they hang out. They will do their programming of their previous roles in life, which is its own commentary. Like the TSA guy who absentmindedly waves his metal detector when pe- when other zombies walk by and like M who raises his hand for the check sitting at the bar With um, the janitor. and the janitor who continues to mop the floor absently yeah and the two kids they have the name tags like they were clearly unaccompanied minors and they stay together and presumably at some point before they became zombies they were told to stay together and they did well after becoming zombie kids so you see that they they kind of seem to have some sort of sense of like remnants of who they were and connection with each other to a limited extent. 
but the bonies are indistinguishable. So even if they do have anything like that, there's no way to tell. Yeah. I think you sort of hit onto one of the other things it's talking about with that communication thing is sort of a danger to complacency and that structure of society Mm -hmm. and that you get sort of trapped in it in that way. And I think it's notable that R, the one who is able to break out of this, he says he doesn't really remember having a job and makes a mildly problematic quip about the hoodie suggests being unemployed. Which really all it would indicate is that he probably wasn't at work when he got attacked. Or he worked in a job that didn't require a nice address code or he got changed after work. Maybe he worked in a stock room or something. Anyway, yeah, there are plenty of jobs where you could wear a hoodie. Anyway, or he was cold, but he doesn't have anything to tie him. Like the thing that he does is he collects things. He goes and gets them and he makes a little area that he likes to himself. He doesn't seem to have any compulsions to mop floors or security check people or anything. He's able to be much more of an individual. Yeah, his he does have a compulsion though, and it is that like kleptomaniac tendency. He's very much like Wally, which mm-hmm. I remember commenting about while we were watching it. He has a little hoard of things that he just thinks are neat, you know. And you see as they go to new places. And even when he attacks Perry, he steals Perry's watch after he eats him. Like, as he is eating Perry, he goes, nice watch. And later you find out he has it. So, like, that's what he feels compelled to do is just grab shit. (laughs) Maybe he was a kleptomaniac or, you know, a bit of a shoplifter before he was infected. Who knows? There are some weird parallels to Wally in this film. Mm -hmm. With, like, the going back to his little place and putting some music on and chilling out and... Just sort of shuffling around, doing whatever. I think they even both steal snow globes. Yeah, and like try to use their media cache to communicate with a love Mm. interest because they themselves are not particularly verbal and get their romantic intentions across in that way, or at least their non-threatening intentions across in that way. And as we said with Wally, like there is some shorthand of the rom-com situation where Mm -hmm. it's like, ah... These these two are destined to be in love because they're a heteronormative couple and in this situation. Yep. The fact that they're a zombie and a human girl and two robots, that doesn't matter. You know what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. We've put them in this situation. You know what we're going with. Yeah. There's definitely also some Beauty and the Beast parallels there because he basically kidnaps her. He's trying to save her from being eaten by the rest of the zombie horde that he came with and like disguises her with zombie grossness so she smells like a zombie and they won't attack her but he also is very much keeping her penned in this airplane where she can't go anywhere because there are other zombies outside who would eat her and he's drawing it out intentionally to try and get her to fall in love with him which is creepy and kind of messed up and very beauty and the beast i don't know how much hope he has of that well i suppose he sort of like has the dream where perry is like oh what you think he'd she'd fall in love with you like you're a you're a corpse and like sort of when she's gone has that like well of course she has what was i thinking so there's clearly some sort of interior narrative for him going like not really believing it can be a thing that's true and i i don't know that he's necessarily trying i think he is i think a part of him is trying to get her to stay long enough to see him as a person and fall in love with him or care about him at least but a part of him also is very critical of that idea as you're saying and like doesn't think that's likely but wants to get as much connection as he can. Yeah. He does seem to be 
dissatisfied with the limited level of human connection he can have with the other zombies because of their limited ability to communicate and think beyond like needing brains. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to talk about relations to other stories, then I think there's a fairly obvious one with Romeo and Juliet, which I yeah. think is far too late <laughs> in the story. Yeah. Um, with R and Julie, they really worked hard on that one. Mm-hmm. They even um, have a balcony scene. They do even have a balcony scene. I think I you may have yelled that out at that moment. To reenact Fafix's response at this point in the movie, really? It was very funny. I think your reaction to it was actually a lot funnier than the actual scene. <laughs> and I feel like M is kind of like, you know... Mercutio. Uh, yeah. yeah. His name is actually Marcus. He does remember it at the yeah. end. But he's very much in this Mercutio role. He's trying to back up his friend. Well, um, his first reaction is like, but she's human. Like, mm-hmm. with th- those are things that we eat. Mm-hmm. Um, which I guess, yeah, that is more Mercutio. Yeah. Of like a... Are you sure about this, buddy? Yeah. I was going to say he's sort of like a father figure type character, but he's not really. No, right. he's, he's much a more bro. Of a yeah. yeah. And Mercutio, I think, in the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, and obviously. He's a hell of know. a bro. Well, yeah. Like, he's like skeptical of Romeo actually being in love with Juliet. And it's like, man, you're, you fall hard for all these women a lot. Like, yeah, you have a very short attention span when it comes to women. Like, you were after some other girl last week kind of a thing. Like, eh. Can we just wait for you to be on the next one? Yeah. Like, do we actually pr- have to deal with this? Pretty much, yeah. And there is a, a sense of this, like, a similar thing to the know their food of the, like, conquest. You know, women aren't people you fall in love with. They are conquests, I think, in that initial those initial scenes between when Romeo is trying to convince his friends that he's in love with Juliet. And they're like, eh, no, you're not. You just want yeah. to get in her pants and you'll be on to your next conquest after that. So the similar sort of cavalier and like dehumanizing attitude. Yeah. Hmm. I bet you the M was intentional for Mercutio. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good bet, actually. Grucio isn't terribly close to Montague or Capula, but you know. But still has that like vaguely Italian sound. Although. Doesn't mean great, doesn't it? Uh, maybe. That would tie in with what you were saying about the bonies as well. Romeo's the Montague, right? Because it's Juliet Capulet. Maybe. I forget. I think the last thing that we want to get into before we get into the big question is how the sort of appearances are used to tell the story in a lot of ways. There's some sort of fairly broad stuff that goes on with colour for R and Julie. For the majority of the film, R is wearing mostly red or most notably red. Whereas Julie is always in like shades of blue. And then even though they clean R up towards the end of the film, he still stays in his same grubby clothes. And his same red hoodie. Yeah. And it's not until the very end, after everyone's recovered, that you see him and her sitting together and they're both dressed in blue at that point. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this idea, like, first of all, there's this just red versus blue, like they're on opposite sides of a conflict, humans versus zombies, etc. And also there's the Capulet Montague thing, where that, you know, warring houses, etc. And then at the end, they've come together and they're no longer at war. But also, more subtly, there's the gradual change in the makeup Nicholas Holt is wearing as R. He starts off with this very pronounced zombie makeup where he's very pale and powdery looking and his lips are very black and his eyes are very black and he just looks a lot more 
you know, dead. And he gets less and less dead looking as time goes on to the point where he looks a little pale and um, has like a slight bit of dark rimming his eyes and lips close to the end when he's almost recovered and is trying to pass for human in the compound. They put on a bunch of makeup on him to help with that. But like even before that, he looks way less zombie than he did at the beginning. And it kind of tracks along with his um, fluidity of motion and his verbal ability they all kind of get more and more normative as the film progresses and as his connection with Julie gets stronger, which is really interesting. And I think you see a similar thing with M as well, where he gets less pale and less dead looking also um, when he starts to recognize connections again. He has a lot of slouch at the start of the movie Mm -hmm. and he straightens up as he goes is one of the big things for him. Yeah. And he definitely gets to a point where he can use a lot more words because he can Mm -hmm. barely speak at the start. Yeah. He almost gets the word city out in the opening scenes. And then by the end, he's got full sentences and he's saying hi to the soldiers and things. Yeah. So I thought that that was really well done and how gradual it is and how consistent it is across like different ways that you evaluate a person's health. Um, except for their clothes. And I actually really appreciated that they kept R in his shitty, fucked up, bullet hole ridden clothes after they put a bunch of makeup on him and stuff. Because I think it's a bit of a nod to the fact that he is still getting through something. Like he's still a zombie. He's still infected. He's not totally normal. And he can't really completely pretend to be. I know we've talked about this in other podcasts before, but what he's been going through has been a hugely traumatic situation. He doesn't remember his name. He doesn't remember his family. He doesn't remember anything about his previous life. It's a horribly traumatic incident. He also has a lot of guilt, we find, about eating people's brains. Like, even as he does it, he feels bad about it. When he gets to the part of eating Perry's brain where he sees himself attacking Perry, he gags and can't continue to experience those memories all of that is horribly traumatic for him and like you can't just put him in a whole other set of clothes and have him look totally normal without undermining that whole idea that the zombie plague that these people are experiencing is something that requires a long road of recovery from which is something that's I think pretty clearly outlined at the end people don't just get over it there are lingering effects Sorry, I'm smiling because there's the scene where the guy's trying to play catch with the like recovering zombie mm-hmm. and keeps just throwing the ball at him. It's just so dumb. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good montage that does kind of demonstrate that like even when the zombies are at the point where they are a little bit more mobile and they are a little bit more verbal and they don't want to eat brains and they're willing to work on that stuff, that stuff being, you know, the urge to eat brains and like talking it's not something that gets fixed overnight they have to continue to work on it one of the last scenes is m who has remembered his name as marcus is looking pretty normal and it's a fairly normal thing he's just trying to open an umbrella and he can't he gets assistance from a passerby and is like sorry i have zombie fingers and it just seems like that's just one of the last things to get better is that like fine motor control and that makes sense yeah it's you're having to relearn some of those things yeah you didn't have a huge use for those while you were uh, mostly concerned with eating brains so. yeah i think the other appearance thing that you don't see a lot is the scars mm-hmm. there are the ones on R's face right which is not clear where he got them 
But when he's in the shower, you can see that he's been shot a few times. Yeah. I think one of the shots is he's shot once by Perry. Yeah. And he gets a knife thrown at him by Julie. Yeah. I think it is Julie. I think it's a nice touch to still have those there Mm -hmm. and be a sign of, as you say, some of the trauma that he has experienced in those ways during uncontrollable bouts of actions. Mm -hmm. I do have a mild problem with it because if he has been shot and stabbed and then his heart starts beating again, there's no reason why those wounds would have healed while in his zombie state. Well, surely blood should just start pouring out everywhere. Well, it looks like they had started to sort of scab over or like a scar over. Like there's some sort of black plug in them. He's got like dark veins going to the bullet wounds and things. I just assume there's something to do with whatever causes the zombification that stops the bleeding and accelerates scar tissue development. Yeah, that's fair. Actually, I think there was one last thing I want to talk about before the big question, which was the importance of the internal monologue in the film. Oh yeah, it's super important. It does so much. It lets them set up the world from the point of view of the zombie. Mm -hmm. Which is obviously one of the things that makes this film fairly unique is that you get that real insight into how they're feeling and doing and how they perceive everything that's happened, but also allows it to be a comedy because you get those moments of whoops, Mm -hmm. essentially. And then juxtaposition that creates comedy. But I think most importantly is it is what keeps you from being able to dehumanize the zombies because you're getting the story from a zombie narrator. When almost, in fact, I think every other zombie thing that is out there pretty much, I mean, I'm sure there's something else that also is not doing that, but is trying to dehumanize the zombies. They're supposed to be a faceless horde. Yeah, and I think that there's a very strong message in most zombie things that they're not human anymore. They can't come back. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the few things that does turn that around. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty much the reason we wanted to watch this to discuss on the podcast is because it's such an interesting and different take on a zombie film to have it be from the point of view of the zombie. Because generally, other zombie things are really trying to convince you that there is no point of view of the zombie. Yeah, I think I can see the movie that someone pitched to an executive that was like, it's from the point of the view of a zombie. And then it's just sort of this farcical slapstick thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that this manages to be a much more intelligent film. Is that the word I want to use? I'll go with intelligent. Like it it does have something to say. It's not just farcical. Mm -hmm. It is dark at times, but it is still funny and it is still trying to make a message. Yeah. I mean, it's a dark comedy and it's a rom-com and it's a zombie movie. And it manages to do all of those, I think, pretty well. Yeah. I potentially stand by the fact that I don't know that there's another actor I could see in Nicholas Holt's role doing it as well. He is really good in this. I mean, Nicholas Holt is... I don't think I've ever seen him be not good in something. I think he's been great in everything I've seen him in. He's just a very good actor. <laughs> he's been great in everything you've seen uh-huh. him Yeah. He, he plays Peter in The Great. Peter, notably, who is not The Great. Yes. Son of Peter The Great. <laughs> We've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before on our Hamilton episode. Maybe we'll do, do a pre-ramble on it or something, but do, do go and watch that. It's um, it's good fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a little messed that up That might be a little simplifying it. <laughs> I appreciate it. I think it's good fun. It, it is good fun. 
among other things. It's mildly fucked up at times. Yes. Yes, it is. It is also that. It's good fun. It's complex. It acknowledges that it's historically inaccurate. Yeah. And it does a lot of interesting things with how it plays with, notably its casting and how stories are told within that world. So maybe we will talk about it at some point. Okay, so I think that's all the things we want to talk about, mostly. I think so. But I think the big question is, does our eating Perry's brain blur his identity? Hmm. You know, I don't think so. Because he's not into Julie because of that. Because he is enamored with her before he eats Perry's brain. In fact, before he kills Perry at all. So we know that that like big part of his personality of him like being fascinated with her is not from that. And because we get a lot of his personality before he's eaten much of his brain and like he kind of keeps eating the brain throughout the movie. I mean, not at the end when he's being less of a zombie, but he seems to experience it as a separate thing. It's more like he's kind of experiencing a movie or like having a dream. In fact, he says that the eating of the brain is the closest thing that the zombies have to dreams until eventually he's recovering enough that he does sleep and dream. So the fact that he has that awareness of it being like a separate experience, I think it's more like drugs. I mean, I suppose you could say that a drug experience might fundamentally change your personality as well, but I don't think that it blurs his identity. I think it's an influence on him certainly because it does give him information he didn't have but I don't think that it actually changes who he is any more than a drug trip would blur his identity does that make sense yeah so I'm not sure what I think is the answer to this question but I want to present a couple of thoughts to you and see if it changes your mind at all okay when he dreams Mm -hmm. he dreams of the group of Julie Perry and their friend whose name I forget Mm -hmm. at that moment he's never had any sort of interaction with that woman Mm -hmm. I don't think he actually sees her in the thing like he certainly doesn't register her Mm -hmm. it's not until later so that connection is coming only through Perry's memories but it's now appearing in his dreams Mm -hmm. and is clearly reflecting parts of his hopes Mm -hmm. because and parts of his doubts because Perry is saying what are you doing here etc right whereas Julie is being like oh maybe we can be together because that's what he wants to believe mm-hmm. and then their friend is making comments about exhuming mm-hmm. the world and that seems to be something that comes back later as well mm-hmm So that is being drawn from a memory? Yeah, I mean, it is tricky because he does have some of Perry's memories and he uses them to plot relevant advantage in terms of being able to get into the human compound because he remembers the passage Julie took Perry through before. Importantly, does not use them as a way to trick Julie into loving him. No, no, he does not do that. So it's, I don't know that it necessarily seems to change his identity though because he doesn't seem to have any of the behaviors or like ideologies that Perry seemed to have. It's more like he has access to certain of Perry's memories but it's more like a knowledge that he has or like something he studied at some point or something like that. Something he has access to but not something that he himself is. 
he has a separate idea of himself as separate from Perry. Even when he is reliving Perry's memories, he still is seeing it from the third person. He's -hmm. still seeing Perry doing those things. There's still that separation between who he is and who Perry is. That's a fair point. I do think it's potentially problematic the amount that, like, when he first sees the brain, he sees Perry and Julie, like, in the car making out and stuff. And, yeah. And, like, declaring love for each other. Because I worry that that drives home more of a idea of love from his side than is necessarily real. But I think the other point that I want to bring up is, at the end, there's the question of whether R wants to pick a name. Mm-hmm. And he chooses to keep his name as R. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want the life he had before, he wants the life he has now. Mm-hmm. And whether there's any question of him having left his old self behind and have created a new identity mm-hmm. that ties in some aspect of Perry's identity. I mean, yeah, I think there, there's a decent argument for that, especially because that initial attraction that he has to Julie, I mean, it it is pretty superficial because he's just like seen her very briefly. And it would explain a lot if part of his inclination to keep her for a while was because he has absorbed some part of Perry and like wanting to protect her and like having those feelings. Except that it does seem pretty clear that they broke up at some point and like are not currently together. Like they're still friends, but they're kind of, you know, there's also a little bit of animosity in certain ways, or at least a little bit of friction there. And that doesn't seem to come through at all. It's all the rosy parts of like that initial infatuation without being tempered by whatever would have happened to break them up. Which is interesting just from like, you see Julie try to take Perry's hand and Perry snatches his hand away. Mm-hmm. And it's not entirely clear why that would happen because either they've broken up already, in which case, why is she grabbing his hand? Or they haven't, in which case, why isn't you like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. When they then go on the mission together. So I I wonder whether that's added to tell the story, but doesn't actually work as a logical thing, kind of like a lot of the things with the zombie science. Yeah, that's fair. I know. I think it's probably more fair to say that R's identity is fundamentally changed by his experience of being a zombie, which is fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and he moves forward from there. Mm-hmm. But a driving catalyst for that i think is the eating of perry's brain so i don't think it necessarily changes his identity by him absorbing perry's memories and becoming a different person that includes part of perry for that but i think it does drive his identity to change in certain ways sure okay which i i don't necessarily think an answer to that question but (laughs) let's move on because i think that the bigger question is why is john malkovich in this film (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I think he does a really good job in it, though. He does. Again, John Malkovich is just a good actor, so. Or maybe the better question is, why is John Malkovich the only person in this film who is alive and not a hot teenager? I mean, there has to be a dad in any, like, teen rom-com thing. Like, the overbearing dad, that's the situation there. Sure, but, like, where's the rest of civilization? I I fail to believe that at the end of all of this, the only people who have survived are John Malkovich and hot teens. (laughs) They might be early 20s. Okay, fine. Well, the actors probably are. I think they're intended to portray hot teens. I want some ugly teens. I want some people (laughs) who aren't teenagers. 
Where's the annoying kid brother? That's an important character. I think that they canonically die. I think that that's mentioned, actually. But that's not the point. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that she did have a brother that died. Anyway. Do you have any fun facts or interesting tangents? I feel like we've peppered in our fun facts this time. Yeah. I mean, the closest I can come to fun facts is, like, I just, like, have this list in my head now of just Nicholas Holt projects yeah that you might recognize him from if you have not seen warm bodies he is the like main war boy that you actually see in fury road mad max fury road which is also really good he is peter in the great he plays beast in the x-men movies the days of future past ones like the mcavoy ones those ones he's beast he's beast in those obviously this (laughs) but that's goes without saying but anyway so if you didn't know who we were talking about when we were talking about nicholas holt you may know him from one of those instead do you have any fun facts i do have one actually that i've just found and i'm just looking to see if there's any others mm. what year did wally come out uh i don't know you want to check it's right there i could get up but it would be so loud it's right where oh on the yeah. mantle 2008 so it's very possible that some of the R stuff was a little bit of an homage or in some way inspired by Wally. That'd be cool. That's going to be new headcanon. <laughs> they were like, oh, that made that character so endearing. We've got to steal that. Uh, we may have missed a fairly large point that we should have mentioned. Oh? So there are a couple of fun facts. One is, of course, we're talking about the Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. similarities. Perry is a comparison for Paris. That makes sense. Yeah. Is M a comparison for Mercutio? Uh, that's what this list I'm reading thinks. Ha! The movie is based on a book. Interesting. That I had not realized. I guess spoilers for the book, quickly. Like, I kind of want to read it now. But in it, uh, wears a suit and a red tie and has a zombie wife and a zombie child that he has to feed. And he's supposed to be a corporate zombie. Okay, the movie is quite a departure from that. I suspect that people who like the book don't like the movie. I suspect you're right. The ending is also extremely different. Much darker, I'm assuming. Do do you want to know? Eh? If you don't want to know, pause the podcast and skip forward 30 seconds. Apparently Grizzio dies Mm. and Julie, when R kisses her, bites him. And instead of both becoming human, he sort of resurrects. But they become infected with something new and their eyes turn gold instead. And they become like anti-zombies. What? I know. It's possible that the list of fun facts I was reading is not necessarily the best scripture of that scene. But I suspect that they got a lot of the messaging through and took out some of the weird dark shit. So. Huh. Okay. And one last fun fact because we were talking about the Wally hoarding aspect. Mm-hmm. Apparently one of the items that he owns is a Blu-ray of the 1979 movie Zombie, which is... Yeah, I remember seeing that, actually, and thinking it was cute. It was a cute little Easter egg. Yeah. Are we done? I think so. Uh, you had a late thought. I think I actually had a couple of late thoughts. I had a late thought about The Wall, the song Hey You. We had been talking at one point about the lyrics like in the actual verses, not being sure uh, how to interpret the people he was talking to, other than that they weren't in a great place. But thinking about the lyrics, I think that the initial two verses are meant to be specifically about the character Pink's mother and wife. 
Um, if you think about the way that they're described, it's, hey, you out there in the cold, getting lonely, getting old. I think that's his mother. And standing in the aisle with itchy feet and fading smiles. I think that's his wife. Yeah, I think I had missed that because I was thinking of aisle like supermarket aisle and not aisle like church aisle. Mm-hmm. So that was that was me being dumb. Particularly itchy feet, I think, really gives that away. And fading smiles like she keeps trying to engage and she is getting more and more discouraged. So I, you know, was thinking about that. And then with the use of Mother, also from Pink Floyd's The Wall, in Legion, it's weird. And we did kind of discuss how, like, it's an odd choice toward the end of the third season to have it there as part of David kind of imagining this better life where he's raised by his biological parents when that song is depicting a pretty dysfunctional parent and child relationship where the mother is instilling a lot of fear of the world in her child and being overprotective in a way that is not necessarily helpful or functional. But I think that it, while it is something that David's like, using as this kind of positive image I think it's actually pretty realistic even in its dysfunction I think Gabrielle would put all her fears into David and be overprotective and worried about the world and instill a distrust of people in him so while I still think it's weird for him to be kind of looking at that as like this fond idea I don't think it's inaccurate yeah that's fair it is the importance of the balance of Xavier there. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, I finally actually did the late thoughts thing. Yay! And one of them was only two episodes late. Hush you. Hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you're not already a patron, you can sign up on Patreon and you can get to listen along live as we record these, ask questions and we'll respond to you in real time. You can also get bonus behind-the-scenes content, bonus mini-episodes, or even receive this whole podcast episode early and unedited so you can hear all the fun little asides that we have to each other and the cats making all of the noise. Mm -hmm. Also, please do check out our videos on YouTube. It's a new venture for us, and we're excited to see how it goes. Otherwise, I think that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Unrambling, so we hope that you'll join us next time. the zombies that they call corpses um and still shoots are yeah which is pretty frustrating like it makes talking of frustrating yeah <laughs>